You're tuned in to The Clinical Consult, the podcast of the National Register of Health Service Psychologists. My name is Daniel Elkert, and I'm speaking today with Dr. Casey Goodpaster, a licensed psychologist in Ohio about obesity, weight management, and bariatric surgery. Dr. Goodpaster is a clinical health psychologist at the Cleveland Clinic Bariatric and Metabolic Institute, where she specializes in weight management, bariatrics, and pre-surgical evaluations with particular interest in body positivity and binge eating disorder. Dr. Goodpaster completed her internship at St. Vincent Indianapolis Hospital and a postdoctoral fellowship at the Cleveland Clinic before becoming a staff member there in 2016. Dr. Goodpaster, I'm delighted to have you on the program. Thanks so much for joining me today. I'm so glad to be here, Daniel. Thanks for having me. Casey, as I mentioned, today our focus is on clinical issues relevant to obesity and weight management. And to start, I'd like to define a few important terms, what we'll call being overweight, obesity, morbid obesity, and body mass index, or BMI. Could you walk me through how psychologists should define each of these different terms? Sure. So generally, overweight and obesity are defined as weight that's higher than what is considered healthy for a given height, as well as abnormal fat accumulations. And body mass index, or BMI, it's used as a screening tool for overweight and obesity, and we measure it by calculating the kilograms divided by meters squared. So the BMI chart provides some weight classifications based on that, where BMIs from 25 to 29 are considered overweight, BMIs 30 plus are obesity, and BMIs 40 and above are morbid or severe obesity. But I should note that the BMI does have some limitations. Contrary to popular belief, it does not account for body fat in proportion to muscle, and it also doesn't account for other biometric measures of health. So athletes like Arnold Schwarzenegger, Shaquille O'Neal, in their heyday, they would be considered to have obesity based on their BMI, but we can imagine that with how muscular and active they are, they're probably in better health than most. So in regards to some of those limitations, are there other indices or metrics that are used that might be more appropriate considering people come in all different body sizes? There are some ways to measure body fat to muscle. It's not something that most doctor's offices have access to, but you just also want to look at overall health, metabolic state, including diabetes, high blood pressure, cholesterol, activity level, looking at the bigger picture of health versus just focusing just on a number. I see. And then could you clarify again that metric and the point of morbid obesity, and is that somewhere that falls along kind of that continuum of BMI metrics you were referencing? Yeah. So BMI 40 and above would be considered morbid obesity or otherwise called severe obesity. Okay. Is there a particular term there that's preferred in terms of morbid obesity versus severe obesity? Not really. You'll see both in the literature. As far as patient preferences, it's really individual as well. I think sometimes patients are put off by the term morbid obesity. It just, it sounds morbid. (laughs) So there has been some research around what patient preferences are, and they do tend to prefer terms like weight or weight problem versus obesity or certainly fatness or or other terms that seem more derogatory to some. 
Yeah, I think that's a really important consideration, especially as we're being very mindful of building rapport with patients and making sure that the language that we're using is reflective of what a patient would be comfortable with. I want to shift now to the prevalence of obesity in the United States. I'm wondering, could you approximate how many people qualify as obese given that BMI index? And then have there been changes to this estimate in recent decades? Yes, I will throw some numbers at you. The most recent CDC statistics were gathering data from between 2011 and 2014. So in that period, there were 36.5% of adults in the U.S. who have obesity. And as far as how that's changed, overweight and obesity increased dramatically from 46% in the 70s, 1976, to 66% in 2003. But since 2011, it's been very slight and any increase in obesity prevalence among adults has been non-significant. Okay. So just to clarify, that was 66% of adults in 2003 qualified as overweight and obesity. Yeah. So if you take both. Mm -hmm. Wow. So we're looking at a majority of adult citizens in this country. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's for adults. What about for younger folks in terms of children and adolescents? What do the numbers look like for those people? Among youth, there's a 17% prevalence overall. That prevalence rises with age. So for example, 8.9% prevalence among children ages 2 to 5, but then up to 20.5% prevalence among adolescents ages 12 to 19. And while the prevalence of overweight and obesity had been rising since the 1970s, just like we talked about with adults, there hasn't been any change in obesity prevalence among children since about 2003. And that was similar for adults as well, from what I heard you share. Do you have any thoughts about what was going on around that 2003 year where there haven't been increases? I'm just mindful that it sounds like increases have occurred since the 70s, and then it sort of flatlined around 2003. What led to that flatlining? I'm not sure exactly. I would guess that there has been more emphasis on prevention, education, treatment. There's kind of this opposite swing in our culture towards more dieting. And there's pros and cons to that, which we'll probably get into as well. But I think there were a lot of changes from the 1970s to today with regard to what our food looks like, our food culture, but then also a lot more awareness that we need to do something about it. So you've alluded to this a little bit already, but I want to focus now on some of the factors that might be contributing to obesity. And I think certainly there are likely a host of behavioral, genetic, and environmental factors that contribute to obesity and and being overweight. But I'm wondering, could you highlight just a couple that in your experience working with patients seem especially important for psychologists to consider when they're working with their patients? You're right. Obesity has many biopsychosocial causes. And the overly simplified explanation is that obesity results from more calories consumed than expended through physical activity. And our weight-biased culture tends to send the message, too, that it results from a lack of willpower. Um, Unfortunately, that weight stigmatization can become internalized patients might blame themselves with their weight problems. However, I think one of the most important things that a psychologist can do is to educate patients of the many biological factors that make significant sustainable weight loss possible for only 2% of people who diet. So to name a few, our bodies were designed for food scarcity. So if someone suddenly stops eating as much as usual, the body perceives there's some kind of famine going on. 
And to protect from weight loss, the metabolism slows down to increase fat storage. And the body produces less leptin. That's an appetite suppressing hormone. So hunger increases. It's really just the body's way of defending this set point or a status quo of about a 20 pound range. So yo-yo dieting can result in the body increasing the set point to okay. protect against future threat. That explains why when most people lose weight, they gain it all back plus more. Also keep in mind, obesity is highly genetic, even more so than schizophrenia, heart disease, almost any other condition. And that means that patients who have this genetic background of obesity have to work much harder just to stay at the same weight than those who don't have that genetic background. That's interesting. I heard you say just there that obesity has that genetic component and almost more than heart disease. And I had a reaction. I heard that. And I thought if you in society, there's sort of this mindset, well, heart disease, people sort of have an acceptance that that's something that is highly genetic. But when it comes to obesity, I don't think as a society, we have that similar kind of a narrative. It it kind of connects back to what you were saying about willpower. Absolutely. That's that more weight biased kind of culture that we live in, where it's very much attributed to individual factors. But beyond genetics and biology, there's a whole host of other things. So I just think it's really important to raise these points with patients because when they really hear the message that they haven't failed diets, the diets failed them, it can be a Mm. a tremendous relief. Yeah. And I think perhaps especially important coming from a psychologist, someone who who has training in this area. I want to talk a little bit also about kind of some comorbid presentations that occur with obesity relating to mental health, just in terms of different anxiety disorders or mood-based presentations. Are there any particular mental health comorbid presentations that in your experience seem to overlap with a person who is obese? Depression is the biggest one. You can think of it as having a bi-directional relationship with obesity because depression can, of course, reduce motivation, activity, can increase appetite, lead to emotional eating. But then also obesity could lead to depression just by way of this weight discrimination, mm. poor body image, limited ability to participate in pleasurable activities. So they really seem to affect each other. It makes me think, so we've got some of these presentations that occur, perhaps especially relating to depression with obesity. When patients say that one of their goals during treatment with a psychologist is to lose weight, what are good strategies or techniques for a psychologist to apply in that situation? Food diaries are the cornerstone of behavioral treatment. These are considered to be the number one best predictor of weight loss. That would be regardless of the weight loss approach, what, regardless of what diet or if someone's getting surgery. If people are keeping track of what they're eating, they are losing more weight. And beyond just like keeping track of calories and what you would typically think of with a food diary, a psychologist would be more interested in the things associated with eating. So I would ask patients to record the types of food that they're eating, the time, how hungry they were from one to 10, and then the thoughts, feelings, and behaviors that were associated with eating. So that can really help to facilitate awareness. It creates some accountability and it gives some excellent data for these common patterns in eating. The psychologist can then use those as a jumping off point in sessions. So for example, if the food diaries reveal that patients are eating for comfort when they're stressed, I would help them to increase their awareness of those underlying feelings and needs when the cravings arise and find some other ways of meeting those needs without food, like through relaxation exercises. 
But then you might also find from the food diaries or certain triggers like watching TV becomes associated with snacking. There you can use some stimulus control strategies or trying to break that connection between TV and snacking by reserving only one place in the house to eat, usually at the kitchen table, or explore what kind of foods are too stimulating, trying to limit exposure to those and focusing instead on foods that are more satisfying mm. that can be enjoyed mindfully in smaller amounts without triggering overeating. Speaking of mindful eating, I, I also try to help patients become more in tune with their body's hunger and fullness signals and honor hunger regularly throughout the day. So mindful eating exercises can really help to find enjoyment in smaller amounts of food uh, by focusing on all the sensation involved in eating. Then the last thing I'll say too is that CBT is really useful in breaking down negative thoughts about eating and weight loss. A lot of patients have distortions like, I've been trying hard and still didn't lose weight. I might as well just give up or I blew it with overeating. I might as well just go all the way. So what I encourage is more of a B student mentality. Instead of trying to be the A student, being perfect, which only sets you up for feeling like an F student if something doesn't go according to plan, just aiming for 80% adherence to the dietary recommendations. And then the rest of the 20% practicing some self-compassion, which can better help someone get back on track. It sounds like a number of these strategies are from CBT, a cognitive behavioral perspective. I heard that there's a strong element of mindfulness in there. And I heard a phrase, stimulus control strategies. And I'd like to sort of focus in on that a little bit more. And if, could you break down what you mean by that for me? So stimulus control is just a fancy way of saying that there are certain triggers in our environment that cause us to act in a certain way. So the easiest example is if someone's in a movie theater, they're going to want to eat what? Popcorn. Popcorn. That's what yeah. I want to eat. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So even if you aren't particularly hungry or that movie theater always has stale popcorn, if you went to the movie theater and you didn't eat popcorn, it would feel weird, like something was off. I see, yeah. And so there's a lot of ways that we develop those kind of connections. So stimulus control is about doing something different or finding substitutes during those times or limiting exposure to the stimuli in the first place. So, for example, if a patient typically keeps cookies out on the kitchen counter, then it's going to be pretty automatic when going into the kitchen just grabbing some. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of different things that you might explore with a patient around, first off, do the cookies need to be at home? Could, be, could they be saved for special occasions? If they do have to be at home, do they have to be on the kitchen counter? Or could they be at the very top of a cabinet where they'd have to get out a chair, get up there and dig around and find them? that would be less of an automatic behavior. It'd be something that would be more thoughtful or even just kind of limiting the amounts. So if the cookies have to be at home, could they be in individual serving size baggies? So then when the patient's done eating, it'll be at the bottom of a smaller bag versus eating directly out of a package. All these kind of built-in ways of checking in with yourself and figuring out whether I want to get more or not. So it's really breaking it down in these, you know, day-to-day -day living situations in a really concrete way. And I want to transition now and address how might treatment by a psychologist in private practice differ or be similar from the approach used by a psychologist working in an integrated care setting, for example? Well, there's certainly differences based on practice settings and pros and cons to private practice and integrated care. I would think most likely if a patient's seeking out treatment from a psychologist in private practice, 
he or she already has some insight into emotional contributors to weight management difficulties and a desire to use therapy to help, help overcome some of those challenges. So then an important piece of obtaining the patient buy-in for therapy has already been done. In integrated care, patients might have initially been seeking weight loss medications or bariatric surgery, physician-supervised diets. Some may self-refer for behavioral treatment from the psychologist, but others might be more focused on medical intervention, and there could be even some stigma attached to being referred to the psychologist. Mm -hmm. So the psychologist in integrated care might need to focus more on educating patients about their role, destigmatizing the process. But on the other hand, psychologists in integrative care do have the advantage of relying on the interdisciplinary team that helps to address these other important elements of weight management that are beyond the scope of our expertise. So the consultation, the collaboration, it's more feasible, especially when psychologists are embedded in a weight management program. And I do think patients are more likely to benefit if it's a more cohesive, holistic approach that's addressing both the mind and the body. One treatment approach, and we talked about um, this a little bit earlier, and I want to return to it, that might be particularly relevant in an integrated care setting um, has to do with uh, bariatric surgery. So I know earlier you provided a definition for the term morbid obesity, and we put it on that BMI index of, I believe it was at 40. I'd like to focus now on different uh, treatment approaches for that. And as I mentioned, bariatric surgery is one of them that I know you have some experience in. Could you describe what that procedure involves when it's a clinically indicated intervention and a little bit about what psychologists can do to prepare their patients to successfully undergo this procedure? Yeah, bariatric surgery is actually most of what I do. And it is simply the most durable effective treatment for morbid obesity and a host of other associated medical conditions. There's two primary bariatric surgeries, the Roux-en-Y gastric bypass and the sleeve gastrectomy. The Roux-en-Y is considered to be a gold standard of bariatric surgery. It's got a very long history, lots of research support, excellent outcomes, particularly for diabetes improvement and even remission. And it involves separating out part of the stomach where it creates a pouch about the size of an egg. And that would mean that it takes less food for the person to feel full. In addition, the intestine is rerouted to the small stomach pouch, bypassing the initial part of the intestine. So less of what one eats is getting absorbed by the body. Less calories get absorbed, that helps with weight loss, also less nutrients. So the, the patient has to take vitamins lifelong to avoid malnourishment there. And then the second one, the sleeve gastrectomy, is considered more of a moderate approach because only the stomach is operated on. About 70% of the stomach is removed, uh, taking the stomach from about a football size down to a banana size. And that procedure just restricts how much someone can eat. And again, patients would feel full with smaller amounts of food. It's actually becoming more popular nationwide right now. Okay. I heard you say that the Ruin Y procedure used the phrase gold standard with that. What, why did you use that phrase there? It has been around the longest. It has a lot more research support in terms of long-term outcomes as a result of that. And it seems just by nature of the surgery to have the biggest benefit for diabetes, which is one of the biggest reasons patients pursue bariatric surgery. Okay. So whereas the sleeve gastrectomy, that also helps improve diabetes. The gastric bypass, it's 
seems to be a faster process. So even when patients are leaving the hospital after the operation, they're often off of their diabetes medications already. So it was a metabolic change that prompted the remission of diabetes, where with the sleeve, it's more diabetes may improve by nature of the weight loss. Weight loss helps to improve diabetes. I see. So that's why the gastric bypass is usually the go-to for, for diabetes. So how long does that intervention usually take the procedure? With the gastric bypass, it's usually a three-hour procedure, where okay. the sleeve is a two-hour procedure. So another consideration would be if somebody is medically high risk or has a very high BMI, they may recommend the sleeve because less time in surgery would be lower risk. So there's some differences based on which of these procedures would be more appropriate. You really have to be attending to individual patient factors here. Definitely, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's some differences in weight loss too. The gastric bypass typically yields a little bit more, but they can overlap. Okay. How can psychologists help prepare their patients to undergo either one of these procedures? And what types of language or conversations do psychologists have with their patients sort of leading up to the procedure? The psychology role is really important. All patients have to undergo a psychological evaluation prior to surgery. So a piece of the psychology role is making sure there aren't any absolute contraindications for surgery per national guidelines. So those okay. would be things like severe uncontrolled mental illness, active substance abuse, lack of understanding of the surgery. But I think more than that, we're there to help identify strengths and any vulnerabilities that are there to help maximize surgical outcomes. And there's so many ways that we can be of use preparing patients depending on where those strengths and vulnerabilities are. One thing is that patients should really be going into surgery feeling emotionally in the best spot that they're likely to get to. Because if a mood or an anxiety disorder is already not in a good spot, there's a chance that adding on all the lifestyle changes and the stress of those could make it worse. Mm -hmm. So we try to educate patients about how they can monitor their mood, how do they maintain a stable mood, how do they get the support that they need, both from formal and informal kinds of sources. Education, too, is going to be about the lifestyle changes needed and really helping patients to wrap their minds around what that's going to look like and start working towards some of those changes even before surgery. So mm -hmm. if there's things that have to happen afterwards, like eliminating soda, working on those things now so that way not everything is changing at once tends to help with the adjustment. We also play a big role helping to treat disordered eating patterns. Again, the surgery itself is not going to it's not going to cure disordered eating. I always tell patients that this is a stomach surgery, not a mind surgery. Mm -hmm. So if some of these things aren't worked on before surgery, they do have the potential to reemerge later. So it certainly sounds like just in a, in a variety of capacities, you're supporting these patients, not only from sort of this, this evaluation procedure that you mentioned, but also working with patients to get an understanding of what it is that the procedure is providing and what it's not providing. Exactly. Um, yeah. I want to transition now because I know that, uh, Casey, one of your interests is in body positivity. I know you've done um, a lot of work in that area, and I'm wondering, like, what specifically can psychologists do so their interventions convey empowering messages to people with all different body sizes? We have to keep in mind that people with obesity have been on 
countless diets before. And like I had mentioned, there can be some internalized weight bias. They might expect that the surgery will help improve their body image, but that doesn't necessarily happen because, again, body image is something that exists more in the mind, the perceptions, than it does based on body size. So I try to actually incorporate some principles from a movement called Health at Every Size, which Mm. it's a philosophy that purports that dieting causes physical and emotional distress. So we should be addressing health change directly rather than just expecting that health is going to improve from weight loss. And it's seemingly mutually exclusive of the health at every size and weight management kinds of perspectives. But I do think there's ways that we can incorporate both and find the best, best of both worlds with that. And one piece would be avoiding pathologizing weight and de-emphasizing the scale as a measure of progress. Patients seem very focused on the scale and that can, that can derail them. So if weight loss is too slow, they might give up. So we want to instead focus on behavioral goals, setting smart goals, uh, focusing on these non-scale achievements along the way, and trying to approach weight management from more of a positive self-image rather than a negative self-image. So rather than I'm broken, I need to be fixed, this weight is terrible, more from the perspective, I love myself how I am, but because my body isn't letting me do the things I want to do right now, I want to improve my health. So that's a much more compassionate kind of way to approach weight management. Um, And then also just encouraging more flexible and intuitive eating. So that's very contrary to diets, which are all about complete deprivation, restriction, Mm -hmm. ignoring hunger. This more intuitive way of eating would be listening to the body's hunger and fullness cues, eating when hungry, stopping when satisfied. And instead of using exercise as a punishment for overeating, is finding more enjoyable ways to move that, that feel good. And of course, we, we also have a lot of body image reprocessing interventions that we can use in concert with weight management, which I like to work on even before surgery. So I, I really appreciate that message of focusing on some of the behaviors and setting some of these like concrete realistic goals as opposed to sort of that emphasis on the scale before we finish today, Casey, I do want to provide listeners with some good resources to use for additional information about some of the topics that we covered today. I mean, what what would you recommend for psychologists who are looking for more information about how to effectively treat obesity, its related mental health concerns, and implement best practice weight management techniques with their patients? Where would you? What direction would you point them in? I've got a few books I'd recommend. The the one that I recommend most often for more of the emotional preparation for bariatric surgery, really quick read, it's called The Emotional First Aid Kit, A Practical Guide for Life After Bariatric Surgery. That's by Cynthia Alexander. For non-dieting approaches that helps to heal relationships with food, Intuitive Eating is the name of a book by Triboli and Resch, and they also have a workbook available that patients can go through uh, during treatment. It's really great. For emotional eating strategies, I really like 50 Ways to Soothe Yourself Without Food by Susan Albers. And for body imagery processing, a great resource is called The Body Project by Drs. Eric Stice and Carolyn Becker. So this is a way of creating some cognitive dissonance in patients to help them to overcome any internalized thoughts that thinness is the ideal. 
and on the website bodyprojectcollaborative.com there's some group outlines for group therapy treatment and then finally i'd recommend attending conferences for ongoing education be on the lookout for local continuing education events hosted by academic medical centers for example at the cleveland clinic we every year hold a two-day obesity summit even more comprehensive is Obesity Week. This is a joint conference of the American Society of Metabolic and Bariatric Surgery and the Obesity Society. It's the biggest obesity-focused conference in the world. It has content for healthcare professionals of all disciplines. Um, this year, it takes place in Nashville from November 11th to 15th. So hopefully Great. some listeners will be there. Great. So that concludes our time for today, but I want to express my thanks to our guest, Dr. Casey Goodpaster of the Cleveland Clinic for coming on this episode of the Clinical Consult from the National Register of Health Service Psychologists. Thank you so much, Dan.